Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith glad you're here this morning. If you guys have your Bibles, turn with us to 2 Peter chapter 1. Let's celebrate God's truth that he's given to us. We are so thankful for God's word and the fact that we have this as a source to guide our lives, the things that God teaches us through this that helps us know how to follow him, love him, and be obedient to him. And so we are starting to wrap up this teaching series. We've just got a couple of weeks left today, and then next week, I think, is where we're going to wrap this up. And so we're, uh, we're really coming close to the end here. But if you will, uh, just for a couple more times, read this passage with me, and we're going to stop at the word love today uh, in the end of verse 7. So if you will, start in verse 3 and read this with me. Second Peter chapter Chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. And we're going to stop there this morning. We've kind of reached the end of this part of the passage where Peter has been giving us characteristics of what it looks like to have a godly life. When we ask the question, what does it mean to be godly, to have a life that honors God, that, that is living in obedience to him, Peter gives us some characteristics and says we're supposed to add these things to our faith. The starting point of everything in the Christian life is faith because we believe in God. We trust God. We have faith that Jesus is the son of God, that he came to this earth to give us salvation, to die in our place, to offer us hope and life with Christ. We have a faith in him that then Peter says, you take that faith that God gives to you and you start to build into it. You start to add to it. And so the way that Peter talks about these things, he says, it's like anything else in life. It's not just enough to know them. You have to put it into practice. You have to put it into play. Let it be worked out in your life. Add to your faith these things. And then he also tells us not just to have the knowledge of this, not just to say, well, I've got it on some level, on some measure, but he goes, I want you to have these things in increasing measure. They should constantly be a growing aspect of your life. And so he tells us later on in this passage, he says that you do these things, and if you have these, uh, this faith in verse 8, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective 
and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in other words, he could have easily said and written this passage and just been redundant with it. He could have written it like this. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness in increasing measure and knowledge in increasing measure and self-control in increasing measure and perseverance in increasing measure and godliness in increasing measure and mutual affection or brotherly love in increasing measure, uh, measure and then love in increasing measure. There could always be places in our life as we follow Christ in faith to grow. He goes, I want you to have these things in increasing measure, be growing in them so that you won't be ineffective or unproductive in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so I'm so thankful last week for Paul speaking uh, when, when I was going with my family to, to fall break. We had a great time just being away for a few days. But Paul spoke on this idea of the quality of brotherly love or mutual affection. And we talked about this idea of it being a term from the Greek word phileo or Philadelphia. That means we're supposed to have a familial love for one another, that there's this idea of us being in relationship with one another like you are in your family, mother to father, husband to wife, son to, or brother to sister, son to mom, dad, all these different things that you just go, it's a familial love. It's this love that draws us in and it's like a family. And so when we think about the love that we're supposed to have in the Greek word Philadelphia, he goes, that's what the church is supposed to be like. And Paul did a great job talking about that last week. I'm just saying, this is what it looks like to be in the church. We're brothers, we're sisters, my sons who have become followers of Christ. They're now also my brothers in Christ. We are this family in Christ. We have this relationship as Philadelphia, familial love. And he goes, this is how we're supposed to first and foremost express love is in the body of Christ that we take care of one another, that we look out for each other, that just like Paul said last week, somebody else may make fun of you, but if I catch it and hear about it, if I'm the big brother, I'm gonna come to your rescue, right? It should be the same way in the church, that as we have needs in the church, as we have something that's going on in our life, that we come alongside of each other, that we love each other in that familial type love. And so this week, when we take this next step, you go, okay, we talked about mutual affection, brotherly love, and then Paul, or excuse me, Peter wraps up and he adds another love. He goes, so add to your faith, brotherly love, and then love. You go, man, that's a lot of love that we should be sharing. What's the deal here, Peter? What are you talking about? He uses a different Greek word to describe this love. If the familial love, the love of the mutual affection and brotherly love is, is Philadelphia, the Greek word for this love is agape. He says, I want you to have agape love. I want you to have love that comes from God that's given to us so that you can understand how to live out your faith in the same way that God loves you. We need this love. So this is the same way, uh, sharing this word love at the end of a phrase like this, where he goes mutual affection, brotherly love, uh, all these things, and add to your faith love. Peter wraps up this whole list of characteristics and says, the last thing I want you to put on this is love. Paul does the same thing in the, in the New Testament. He'll take lists and he'll say, you should have uh, love at the end. Remember, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. In Colossians chapter three, he lists all of these virtues that we should put on. He tells us to take off the old self, to take off what was uh, destroyed in our sin, to take those things off, but to put on the characteristics of Christ. And the last characteristic he tells us to put on in our faith in following Jesus is love. He says, because love binds all of these other things together in perfect unity. It's like the tendons in our body. Everything in our body gets held together by these tendons. He goes, love is like that. You can have all of these other things, but if love isn't there to hold it together, they just spread apart. They go all over the place. We're told the same thing in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 
right? I can have all of the knowledge of God and of angels and speak eloquently with tongues and all of these different things. But if I don't have love, they're nothing. It's like a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. It's just beating. It's just noise. All the stuff I do in my life that's good and purposeful and has meaning, if it's not undergirded by love, it means nothing. And so when we get to Peter, he tells us again that we should have all of these characteristics, but the last one that we want to have is love, that we want to be continually growing in that. So let me give you just a a thought about this. If you're taking notes this morning, here's the first thing I would encourage you to write down or fill in the blanks if you're on our app. Agape is the highest expression of love. This is a love that originates with God and is the most self-sacrificing word that there is. So the word agape was hardly ever spoken in Greek-speaking societies. They didn't use this phrase. It wasn't something that was common. But when the New Testament writers start writing about God's love, they start using this term agape. 320 times it appears in the New Testament. They just constantly talk about God's love, the agape love. It's the pointed love from God that the New Testament writer said, this is the only thing that really will change the heart of a person. That as you come to know God and his love for you, this is what changes your heart, right? Like it's not about coming to church, having a great community, a great fellowship. It's not about having great music that we listen to, occasionally hearing a good message from the pulpit. It's not any of that stuff because this is what will change your heart. It's the love that you discover that God has for you. It's life-changing. And so the New Testament writers constantly wrote about this agape, this love. Uh, And for us, we have these theological definitions for agape love. Let me give you a couple just to help define this phrase, agape. Here's the first. Again, if you're taking notes, you might want to see this. Uh, The active love of God for his son, Jesus, and his people. And it's the active love that God's people are to have for God, for each other, and even for their enemies. So agape is this active love. First, it's from God. It's for his son. He said, this is my son in whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Right, like Jesus was poured out on the love of God. And so first it's for God, but then it's for people. That God loves all of us. And then we find that in John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his son. That's why he sent Jesus to earth in the first place is he loves us. But not only is it a love that God has for his son and for his people, it's a love that we're supposed to learn and then express back to God. God, I love you. It's an immeasurable love. I want my love to be increasing for you and growing for you. So God, I love you. But not only do I love you, but I love your people. And I want to demonstrate and display the love that you're giving into my life and pouring into my life outward to your people, but not just for us, Like the brotherly love we talked about last week, we don't want to just close the door there and go, well, this is kind of a club, right? Like this is a Christian club that we have and you sign the membership and you come in and it's a members only deal and we'll love each other inside of here, but the world outside, oh, they'll figure out another way to find happiness and peace and joy and love, right? No, no, he goes, you love me, you love one another and then you express your love outward to the whole world the same way that God did for us. That we take his love and we extend it out. That we show love even to our enemies. We're going to touch on that later because that's what got Jesus in so much trouble with the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the people of the law. They couldn't understand how Jesus could love people who were so different than them. And so we're supposed to have that same kind of love. Agape love is this active love. Here's another definition 
from Ken Boa of this Greek term agape. Ken Boa said, agape is the steady intention of the will to another's highest good. It's an ongoing benevolence for another. So it's the love that God has for us, a love of his will. It's almost this idea of this covenantal love of going, I love you and I'm in relationship with you. And no matter what you do, my love doesn't change for you. When you rebel against me, my love is still for you. When you walk away for a season, my love is still for you. When you choose sin over choosing me, my love is still for you. It's this covenantal love. It's a love of the will. I choose you. I want you. I've brought you into my family and I'm going to hold on to you in that relationship as you abide in me and know me and follow after me. And so it's this covenantal will. It's for the, the good, the benevolence of someone else. And so for us, it's great to have these kinds of terms and definitions. We live in a society, a culture that loves definitions. We love to take things and go, what does that mean? And break it down and get to the smallest denominator and the biggest common factor and all those kinds of things. And it's great for us to have that. But the truth is, is that most of us won't walk away and go, you know, I really just remember that definition about agape. Like that was so good. That definition just changed my life, right? We don't remember them. It's nice to have them, to define them, to break things down, but we're not gonna remember that. And the New Testament writers were the same way. They didn't have theological textbooks to go to and go, well, let's break down and find out what does agape mean and then write about it. They didn't have uh, a, a strong concordance of the Bible to help them go, well, let's find every verse in the Bible that talks about love and let's figure out how to put that into play. Let's, they didn't do that. They didn't have Google. I'm very dependent on Google to find all kinds of stuff, right? They didn't have that. They didn't go, well, I need to know what agape love is. Let's type that in and figure it out. No, they don't have that. So what did the New Testament writers, when the people in the New Testament, the followers of Jesus, his disciples, when they wanted to figure out what God's agape was like, what did they do? They looked at Jesus. After Jesus' life, death, his teachings, his resurrection, after all of those things, they go, if we want to know what agape is, what following God is, to know how God's love is for us and how to respond to that love, what do we do? Let's look at Jesus. Let's look at his life. Let's look at his teachings. And that's exactly the same thing that we should do. That's what the New Testament writers did. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. The Pharisees uh, once asked Jesus to share his opinion on what the greatest command was. Okay, Jesus, we've got all these teachings. What do you think the greatest command is? And Jesus did a great job of answering that. He was God in flesh, so it makes sense he would do a good job. But their goal was to try to discredit Jesus. To go, maybe he'll trip up. Maybe he'll say something that gets people riled up. Maybe he'll say the wrong thing and then we'll have a way to accuse him or we'll be able to nail him down on a topic that he can't defend himself. And they asked this question, what's the greatest command in the law? Now, a lot of times we think about the law and we go the 10 commandments, right? There's 10. Let's pick the biggest one. What's the best of 10? In the Jewish tradition, there were over 613 laws. There were lots of laws. So they're going, all right, Jesus, of all the laws that's out there, what's the most important? And do you remember how Jesus answered? Let me read this to you. Matthew chapter 22, verses 37. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and it's the greatest command. And so Jesus pulls this straight from Deuteronomy chapter six. It's a passage in scripture in the Old Testament. It was the central passage of teaching for the Jewish people, the Israelites. He goes, I want to take this passage and I want to impress this on you. That's what God had told the people. Impress this on your hearts. 
Talk about this. Anytime you're around your family, when you're walking down the road, when you lay down at night, whatever you're doing, talk about this idea. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. And so Jesus gets it right. And they go, yeah, that's a great answer. You're, you're absolutely right. That's exactly what we would have said. <laughs> if you had asked us, the religious rulers, the law guys, we would have said the exact same thing Jesus did. But Jesus wasn't done. He didn't stop there. He goes, oh, but there's another one. Listen to this. Verse 39, the second is like the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And so Jesus doesn't stop and go, well, listen, if you just do everything you can to love God, that's enough. Love God completely, and that's all you got to do. You can completely ignore the rest of the world around you. Just have your focus and attention on God. Jesus didn't say that. He goes, you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it. Love your neighbor the same way you love yourself. You take care of yourself, take care of your neighbor. You do things that are good for yourself, do good for your neighbor. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two things. When you think about the Ten Commandments, there's these vertical commands. How do we live in relationship with God? And then there's horizontal commands. How do we live in relationship with other people? He goes, hey, you know what? If you will just love God and love people, you'll keep all of the commands. You're not gonna murder somebody that you're trying to love like yourself. You're not gonna steal from somebody that you're trying to love like yourself. You're not gonna pursue idols when you have a God that you love first and foremost in all of your life. So all of the commands hang on these two Thing. So Jesus gets this right. And he also says, listen, you can't have a proper love for God without having a love for people. Jesus saw these two commands as being completely connected. You can't disconnect these two things. Because you can't love God and choose not to love people. And likewise, you can't love people in a God-honoring way without a love for God that's filling that and feeding that so you have something to give back out to them. So that's what this is all about. If you're going to love God, you're going to love people. And if you're going to love people appropriately, you're going to love God in order to do that. It feeds one another. They're connected to each other. John, one of Jesus' disciples, he picks up on this idea in his epistle in 1 John chapter 4 on how to be like Jesus both in thought and action. Listen to 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. John says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He gave us of his spirit. And we've seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and we rely on the love God has for us. God is love. God is agape. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how we know or excuse me, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we're like Jesus. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. 
We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they've seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. And he's given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and their sister. And I love what he says. And I think it's so powerful in verse 17. He says, this is how love is made complete among us so that we have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. How do we understand God's agape love? How do we hold on to our faith throughout our lives? How do we get to the end and know that there's not condemnation for us? Because the way you do that is that you live in God's love and you express it outwardly. You are like Jesus. The term Christian that we use when we identify ourselves as Christians means little Christ. We're like Christ. That we want to be like him. We want to be with him. So John gives us that whole passage to say, here's what Jesus did. He loved God with everything that he had in him. And he turned around and he loved other people like they were his brothers and his sisters. He made everyone come in to Jesus's family. So what was Jesus like? For him to say in this world, we need to be like Jesus. What was Jesus like? Jesus loved everyone. Jesus broke societal norms to hang out with people that no one else would associate with. Jesus gave grace and mercy instead of judgment and condemnation. He valued people over laws. Jesus always showed God's love and he was seen as a rebel and a threat to the religious establishment for that very reason. In fact, on multiple occasions, the religious leaders challenged Jesus about why he hung out with sinners. Can you imagine being so bold to go, hey, pastor, why do you hang out with sinners? They're not like us. People coming up to Jesus and going, we're so religious and so pure and so holy and so righteous, and they're not. Jesus, why do you hang out with the sinful people? You should be with us. Doesn't that make you want to hang out with them? Religious snobs and elites. Going, Jesus is going, look, these sinful people that you're talking about, that's exactly who I came for. And so they pressed him on it. They kept saying, why do you hang out with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes? Why are you like that, Jesus? And maybe it should make us ask the question. I know a lot of times it makes me ask the question, who am I hanging out with? Have I surrounded myself by the religious establishment? <laughs> I've gone, man, I love our church family. I love being with Christian people. But do I hang out with sinners too? Am I just as comfortable around broken, messed up people as I am around any of you? Understanding that we're broken and messed up too, we just have cooler masks to wear. And yet Jesus goes, you know what? That's who I came for. And so to answer their question when they challenged Jesus and went, hey, why do you hang out with sinners all the time? Jesus told three stories. And as we look at these stories, I'm going to give you a few things to think on. Let me give you a statement and then three uh, points to back that up. As Jesus answers this question, he's going to look at four, uh, three stories. And so here's the first thing I want you to know, that God's love is demonstrated in Jesus. Like when we think about agape love, how do we know what agape is? It's demonstrated in Jesus. Now, in these three stories, here's things we're going to see. Number one, that it's a reckless love that holds nothing back. The love that God demonstrated through Jesus is a reckless love that holds nothing back. Number two, it's a totally undeserved love. It's a love we don't deserve. 
and yet God gives it anyway. We're going to see that. And then number three, it's a generous love given for people who couldn't and can't pay it back. So when you want to know what does it look like to be in the love of God, you look at Jesus and you see how he loved others. He demonstrates love in a reckless way that holds nothing back. He gives love that's totally undeserved and it's generous to the point that you can't pay it back. So in Luke chapter 15, we see Jesus tell three stories that demonstrates what God's love is like. If you've been around church for a while, you're probably familiar with these stories. If you're kind of new to church and Christian faith and those kinds of things, maybe this is new to you. I'm not gonna read this passage because it's kind of long, but I wanna just kind of explain it and tell these stories. In the first story, we see a man that has 100 sheep. And Jesus says he gets to the point in the day where he's counting all the sheep and he realizes one's missing. And so he just goes after the one, leaving the 99. And here's what's crazy about that. When we think about this kind of reckless love, most of the time I think in our minds we kind of go, oh, well, he probably put them in the pen and there were other under shepherds there watching them and they were safe and so he went off to find the one. That's not the way Jesus conveys the story. He just goes, a guy had 100 sheep. He realized one was lost. He left 99 and just went and pursued one. They're not safe. Nobody else is watching them. We don't know what's happening with them, but the one lost one was so valuable and so important to Jesus that in a reckless way, he goes, forget the, the 99, I gotta go get that one. I gotta go bring it back and make sure it's safe and take care of it. Because this is reckless love. You wouldn't do that. We would find that crazy. You wouldn't just leave your kids somewhere to go chase after one that kind of ran off. You would bring them with you, Right? And Jesus goes, this one sheep was so valuable to me that I left the 99 to go and get the one. And so we're told in this story that it seems crazy to do that until you realize that you and I are that lost sheep that Jesus chases after. Because I would leave everything to come for you. You're the sheep. There was a period of time in your life that you were separated from God. You didn't know him. You were outside of his family. You had run off from God and you weren't part of the group. And Jesus loved you so much that in a crazy way, he left the glory of heaven to come to this earth to come get you because he loves you. He has agape for you. And so when Jesus tells this story, he says, I'm going to hold nothing back to come and seek you out when you're far away from God so that you can be brought back into safety under his watch care. Then there's a second story. Jesus tells about a woman who had 10 coins and one of the coins gets lost. Now the woman's the only character in the story, but I have this sneaking suspicion that the husband was the one that lost the coin. He was probably doing like most guys do. If you're bored, you, sit, you take your wedding ring off and you just flip it around on the table and it spins. And have you ever done that, guys? Start spinning it and they're just flying off. Hamby, you did. All right, good. I'm not the only one. I bet the guy was just walking around the house with this coin, flipping it up in the air and catching it and flipping it up in the air and catching it. And then he dropped it and rolled somewhere and he was like, I don't know. And he just walked off. And the woman is like, well, no, we got to find that thing. So she goes to crazy measures to find it, right? She starts sweeping the whole house. Okay, why would you do that? Because the floors were dirt. So if the coin is in the dirt, you got to move the dirt out of the way to try to find the coin. She starts sweeping the house. She moves all the furniture. She takes the brightest candle she can get and looks in dark corners. She does everything possible to find this one coin. And then Jesus says, the one coin that was missing, she finally finds it. And what happens when she finds the coin? She calls together the community and goes, come have a party. I found the coin that was missing. How many of you would do that? If you misplaced $100 and 
And then you realize, oh, it's just in my pants pocket in the wash. I got it right here. Let's call the neighborhood together and party, right? She probably spends more on the celebration and the party with her neighbors about this coin than the coin was worth itself. And Jesus goes, that's the kind of value that I see in sinners, the people that you religious guys don't want, I'll do everything possible. I'll move heaven and earth out of the way to find them. And then when I find them, I rejoice over that. Jesus actually said in the story that he told to the Pharisees, he goes, the, the heavens rejoice more over one that's saved, one that's found, than all the others combined. So this is what heaven is like. When even one person comes to repentance, heaven rejoices in that. This is why we do things like Operation Christmas Child and Who's Your One? The names that we have on the crossover here, the, the names of people that you've prayed for and written down and said, these are the people in my life that I'm concerned about. They don't know Christ. And I'm gonna pray and ask God for an opportunity to share my faith with them so maybe they would come into the family. Listen, of all of those names on the cross over there, if one comes to faith in Christ, it's a party. It's a celebration. We don't have to look at that and go, oh my gosh, there are like 200 names and only one accepted Jesus. What a colossal failure that was. No, nothing could be further from the truth. The love that Jesus has for one is immense. It can't be measured. He goes, if I find you, I'll have a party to celebrate. The heavens will rejoice. The body of Christ should celebrate. It should be exciting to us. When a kid opens a shoebox in August, <laughs> he goes, I've, I got these gifts from this American person at Grace Fellowship Church in a place called Kingsport, Tennessee, because that's probably how they would say it what is this place and who is this person? And then they hear the gospel presented. And in a room full of kids, if even just one comes to faith in Christ, the whole Operation Christmas Child thing is worth it. Right? Like that's what this is all about. We take the gospel and the good news to people all over the world. The final story that Jesus tells. We often call it the prodigal son. I think of it more as the lost son. We had a lost sheep, we had a lost coin, and then we got a lost boy. And there's this dad who has two kids. And Jesus tells the story that the younger son, in typical younger son fashion, comes to the dad and goes, hey, I don't want to wait till you're dead to get the inheritance. Give me what's going to be mine now. And that's a giant slap in the face, right? Essentially, this kid is saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. I would consider you an enemy. Just give me your money that belongs to me in the future. And the dad does. The dad hands it over. And Jesus says, and the boy goes off. He leaves the farm. He goes to the city. He's done with farm life. He goes, I'm, I'm going to go to the city for a while. Well, I'm going to go to the most happening place I can possibly find. And it says that he parties and he squanders his wealth. And we don't know how long it takes, but he burns through his money and it's gone. And then Jesus says, and a famine came into the land and there was no food and the boy had nothing to take care of himself. And so to get help, he goes and he goes to another farm, goes back to what he knows. 
He goes to a farm and he says he starts feeding slop to pigs. For Jewish people, pigs were out of bounds. This is a ridiculous prospect for him. He says as he's feeding these pigs over time, he gets so hungry, he starts looking at even the pods that he's throwing out in the slop and going, I just want to eat one of those. I'm starving. And Jesus says the servants who are around him won't even let him eat the slop. And so finally, in a moment of great realization, he comes to a place where he goes, you know what? When I think back to home, my dad's servants eat better than this. He takes care of his servants way better. And so he comes up with a plan. I'm going to go home, not as a son. I'm going to go home and beg for forgiveness and ask to be a slave to my dad. I'm going to ask my dad if he'll let me work on the farm as a servant. And he does. He goes back home. What he doesn't know is that his dad's love for him is so immense that he's been watching for his son every day. He looks down the road constantly. He goes, my boy coming home. And on this day, he looks and he says that the, while the boy was a long way off, the dad saw him and he ran. And we go, well, yeah. If I was a dad and I had a kid that had gone away and then he comes back, I would run and meet him too. In this culture, for a man, especially an elder man, to run would have been considered crazy. You just didn't do that. It was undignified. This man would have had to have taken his long robes and tucked them into his belt, girding himself up, exposing his bare legs, and then run down the road to get to his kid. And the kid sees his dad, and he doesn't even let him touch him at first. He stops him. He just goes, I'm sorry. Will you take me back, not as a son, but as a servant? I want to come and work for you. And he expects condemnation and judgment. And he expects his dad to go, what have you been thinking? Where were you? How could you do this to me? And instead, his dad embraces him. He tells his servants that are with him, put the signet ring on his hand. It's the family seal. It's the ring that shows he's mine. Put it on his hand. Put the best cloak that I have, the best robe, wrap it around him. He stinks like a pig. Let's put some new clothes on the kid. Let's give him sandals. Bring that out. And here's the deal, guys. Let's kill the prized calf and let's have a party tonight. We're going to kill the fatted calf and we're going to celebrate. And that's exactly what they do. They have a party for this young man. They celebrate. And in all of this, when the religious leaders go, Jesus, why do you hang out with sinners? He goes, because of this because I love them, because they're lost, because they're hopeless, because they feel defeated and broken and alone, and they need a love from a father that will clean them up, wrap his arms around them, and say, you're mine. No matter what you've done, you're mine. And that's the picture of the gospel. This is what Jesus holds out for us. He says, this is what it's about to be a person who shows agape. The son experienced the love from his father that he didn't deserve. He couldn't repay. And God's like that with us. We don't deserve his love. We can't repay his love. 
But Paul wrote about this in Romans, in Romans 5, 6 through 8. He said, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. All through this series, we've been talking about godliness, how to be godly men and women. He says he died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own agape, his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And isn't that powerful? As you go, how much does God love you? When you were powerless, you couldn't earn his love. You couldn't do anything to gain his love. You couldn't do anything to get his attention or his focus because of what you've done. He goes, I don't care that you're ungodly. I don't care that you're lost and apart from me and away from me. I'm sending my son that in your sinfulness will die for you. He'll give up his rights of heaven and, and being the king of glory to come and give his life for you because he loves you. That's the power of God's love. Agape love is God's covenantal love for us, not because we deserve it or earned it, but because he chose to give it. So when we receive God's love, we return it. That's what we're supposed to do. We demonstrate the change that God's love has made in us by the way we love God and then by the way that we love others, not just in the family of Christ, but to the outside world as well, to those that we would consider sinners. Let's not be afraid to hang out with sinful people. That's why we're here. God's love for us is such that he's poured it out on us to show back to him and then to give away. So let's give it away. So this morning as we close, I want to leave you with two questions to think about. As we kind of get to a point where we're going to sing one last song together, I want you just to consider these questions. First, do you know the extent of the love that God has for you? Do you know the extent of the love that he has for you? Have you embraced that love to say, I know I'm like that lost person. I know I'm that sinful person. I know I'm the one away from God that he's come to chase after and to pursue and to bring life. Have you embraced that? Do you know that God's love is for you? He's demonstrated his love in the greatest measure through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Do you know the extent of the love that God has for you? Here's the second question. Who do you need to show God's love to? If you know that God's love is for you and you have this agape love given to you, who do you need to show that love to this week? Who do you need to have a conversation with just to check in on them? to find out how they're doing, to show God's love back. Who's the lost person, the non-Christian in your life that you go, I just want to share the love of God. It doesn't necessarily even mean that you tell them the gospel. Maybe a first step is just to show them kindness and compassion and mercy and love. Do you know the extent of God's love for you? And who do you need to show that love to this week? Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.